an expansion of a single word picture. It has a two-verse introduction, a two-verse conclusion, and sandwiched in between those bookends, you have this incredible description of the voice of the Lord as a storm. The repetition ascribed to the Lord is used three times. The divine name Yahweh, you'll see that in all caps in your, in your scriptures, appears eight times, and it's balanced four times in the two-verse intro and four times in the two-verse conclusion. And then the voice of the Lord is used seven times. The word picture, a storm. Here's the central focus. The voice of the Lord makes his kingship known throughout the world through a powerful display of his creation, a storm. Look at verse 1. Because there's a movement from heaven, verse 1, heavenly beings and holiness. Now look at the last verse, verse 11. It moves from the heavens to the earth, verse 11, his people and peace. So this is what we'll do this morning, hopefully. We'll take one-third of the psalm to get an understanding of what we'll call the storm psalm, Psalm 29. And then we're going to take a third of the sermon to go to a, a historical narrative in 1 Kings where Elijah has a showdown with the prophets of Baal on the top of Mount Carmel. And then we'll end, probably not equal thirds here, but with a third looking at who is this that even the winds and the seas obey him. If you would, the true thunder God, or really the God who is above even thunder. So look at, look at the psalm itself. Verse 1 and 2, three times, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. And now it doesn't use the word ascribe after those three uses. Now it says worship. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Ascribe simply means to declare something, to declare something that is already true. See, we don't add worth to God. God is already of true worth. We ascribe worth to God by declaring His worth, not by adding to it. For example, if you find something beautiful or someone beautiful or of great worth, you praise it, you talk about it, you explain it to others, you enjoy it, you ascribe worth to it. You're not adding worth to the object, you're simply recognizing it and then declaring it. That's what we do with God. The object of our praise, the object of our worship, we simply then declare it to others. That's what we've been doing this morning by singing. Sometimes we sing to one another, and sometimes it's vertical, and we ascribe worth to God, and we do that together. And what we are supposed to ascribe is that God has both glory and strength. We declare this. We bow down. We worship because of the Lord's value. That's the intro to the psalm. Now it moves into the main section, seven verses out of 11, to describe a powerful storm. Look at verse 3. The psalm was already read for us this morning, but notice how the geography now helps us, if you would, track the storm. In verse 3, the storm originates over the waters of the Mediterranean Sea. 
chaos. In verse 5, it hits land up where the cedar-forested slopes of Lebanon are, and that shows strength. It moves towards, you see the word Syrian, which is most likely the southernmost peak of Mount Hermon. So it hits Lebanon, moves up to Mount Hermon, which is might and height. And then it turns south to travel the entire length of Israel, the breadth of this storm, and then it sweeps into the southern desert of Kadesh. So you're sort of tracking this storm as it moves. So look at verse 3. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. There's something about a huge storm originating over the waters and the acoustics of that water carrying the sound and the claps of thunder. And you're supposed to learn something about that, and it is the voice of the Lord that is over the waters. The the God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Often, major storms originate over the waters. And the thunder over the water and the sound of it, unhindered by anything else, clapping across that water, is supposed to tell you something about God's power. And what this will do, as soon as we get into this picture of a storm, if you would, a theophany, a a visible representation of God to humanity, it's going to start to banish this idea that Jesus is simply our pal, our good friend, our buddy. There is something big and majestic that causes us to ascribe worth and then to bow down. And it has to do with His uniqueness, His holiness. And a storm can tell you about God's character, not fully, but it can tell you something that we often forget. Look at verse 5. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. Some of you who are familiar with the Old Testament will know that this is the, this is the region where Solomon had the timber brought down to build his palace and the temple in Jerusalem. The cedars of Lebanon were, were renowned for their strength and their majesty. It is amazing what a Category 4 or 5 hurricane storm can do to even strong timber. Nature tells us something about God's strength. Here is a symbol of strength, and the voice of the Lord snaps the cedars. Look at verse 6. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf. When When that storm finally makes landfall, It is rumbling, and Syrian, one of the mountain peaks, is like a young wild ox. You have the picture of the earth skipping or rumbling, and that is supposed to tell you something about God's might. Look at verse 7. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. I mean, what else compares to the bright white flash in the middle of the night of a near-hit lightning bolt? especially when there's very little time between the flash and the boom, and it just brightens everything. It's shocking. Lightning tells you something about God's majesty. So even even just within a storm, we are ascribing power and might and glory to God. Look at verse 8. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness 
of Kadesh. I don't know if you've ever gotten caught in a horrific storm. My dad and I got caught in a storm in the western North Carolina mountains. We were land surveying. It just happened to be we were the farthest point away from the land surveying truck and what would have seemed like safety. And all we could do was just stand there in a forest of trees, probably the worst place to be during a lightning storm, and just we were at the storm's will. And I remember the flash and the bang and the rumbling and the western North Carolina mountains would skip like a calf. When it finally passes and you can almost hear the, the, the water drops falling off your clothing, you, you're like, wow, that is amazing. That was just one storm. The voice of the Lord, look at verse 9. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. You know, initially at the first read, uh, we were talking about, Sean and I were talking about this passage together. It seemed like a picture of gentleness, right? A deer giving birth is a beautiful, peaceful picture. Uh, And then it sort of contrasts with, but then he strips the forest bare. But what he seems, what the psalmist seems to be talking about here is this storm is so severe and horrific that the surprise and shock of it cause animals to give birth prematurely. And the more I study that out, it is a scientific fact that a storm can do that to wildlife. It is so startling and so sharp that the voice of the Lord echoes that all these things are happening. And look at the response. Look at the response of God's people of verse 9. It says, The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. Even when it's not fall, it can strip the leaves off a tree. And in His temple all cry what? This is exactly what verse 1 and 2 told us to do. We all cry, glory! That's what a powerful storm does. It it reminds us of God's power. We were at a family picnic uh, at a lake in North Carolina at Conesty Falls. We were on Adagahi Lake. Beautiful day. And all of a sudden, it seemed like without any warning, these dark black clouds came up over the horizon. And before we could even rush to the cars, and it's a good thing we didn't get into the cars, we we were encircled by a storm. Rain was blowing sideways. Hail was coming down. And we were, on, we were under a picnic pavilion uh, on concrete, and all of a sudden the floods start coming over the concrete, which is a really awesome conductor for lightning, right? Wet concrete. So some of the families on this small five-by-five-foot patch of dry concrete, and the rest of us climbed up on the picnic tables, trying to wait out the storm. And all of a sudden, without any warning, it was like the clap and the lightning hit at the same time, And we saw the lightning go down this pine tree and splintered through splinters up onto the pavilion, punctured several of my brother-in-law's tires on his car, busted out his windshield, damaged another car, and we're all just huddling together, hoping that we survive this. Of course, it moves. Nobody gets hurt. The Chattahoochee sidewalk blows up. My, My sister did sustain sort of that secondary bolt that came up through a picnic table. She squeals. And then the storm passes, and we're like, wow. Which is a different way of saying glory. There's something we learn about God in a powerful storm, something we forget, something about his reverence, something about his unique power, something about his majesty, something about, seven times it'll say this, his voice 
Wow, glory. Look at verse 10. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. Right? The greatest storm the world has ever known that happened in Noah's day where God both destroyed the wicked and preserved His own people. A worldwide display of judgment. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. That's what you're supposed to learn. He is king. He is majestic God. And then look at verse 11, the very last verse of the psalm. May the Lord give strength to his people. And I I want you to be surprised by this. Because after the first two verses where you're in the heavens and the holy ones are ascribing worth to God and we're worshiping, and then seven verses of a powerful storm about the voice of the Lord, you would think it would say what? Bow down in silence and worship. It doesn't. It doesn't do that. It says, may the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with what? What word is there? Peace. So we're not expecting that. So in the midst of his power and might and holiness and in a, in, in a, in a theophany of a storm, the psalmist ends with, in the midst of all that, in the midst of his incredible power, may he give you peace. The psalm moves from glory to God in the heavens to peace on earth. Now, please take your scriptures and go from Psalm 29 to 1 Kings 18. I want us to consider a historical narrative section that displays the supremacy of the Lord over another storm god. That's what Baal was known as. God has designed a three-year drought, 1 Kings 17, that forced an intense confrontation between Elijah, who represented Yahweh, that's the all-capitalized Lord of Psalm 29. It forces an intense confrontation between Elijah and Yahweh and the false prophets representing Baal, a storm god. This narrative section happens after David's reign. David is attributed with writing Psalm 29. But I want you to hear this, because this is what's going to make this historical narrative section sort of pop for us. It is fairly certain, with some scholars thinking it absolutely conclusive, that Psalm 29 was originally a hymn written to Baal. Matter of fact, poetically, it makes more sense if you insert Baal in place of the Lord. There is structural evidence, linguistic evidence, and early documentation that support this claim. And that's not really a problem for us. It doesn't have to trip us up. But here you have that portion of Psalm 29 being sung to Baal, a storm god. And now Elijah is forced into a confrontation with the prophets of Baal on the top of Mount Carmel. I want you to to look at 1 Kings 18, verse 1. The drought... The drought has been going on for several years. And it says, After many days the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. Something that that area of the world had not seen for years. Matter of fact, the brook that Elijah had been living by had dried up, and God had to send him him to another location. 
And he says, and I will send rain upon the earth. Verse 2, so Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. And, and look at this little sort of footnote. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Now go down to verse 17. Here's the confrontation. When Ahab saw Elijah, by the way, these two didn't get along well. I mean, that's the, that's the brief version. Ahab said to Elijah, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah answered, verse 18, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed what? What does the text say? The Baals. Okay, this assortment of gods, and one was the storm god Baal. And it seemed like all of Israel had followed after and were calling out to Baal for rain. Why? Because they thought Baal was the great savior. He would be the great drought ender, that he was the thunder god. As a matter of fact, Baal had been depicted as a strong man riding on the back of an ox with a lightning bolt in his hand, a thunderbolt. Not unlike the Greeks, Zeus, pictured similarly, or Rome's Jupiter, or the Norse's Thor, maybe more familiar to us with his war hammer who can call out lightning from heaven. These are the gods of the sky and thunder according to pagan peoples. Now you have this showdown between Yahweh, the creator, and Baal, the storm god. That is why why this showdown on the top of Mount Carmel, Carmel involving lightning and rain and water is so significant. Look at verse 19. These are the teams, if you would. It's Baal, the thunder god, versus Yahweh, the creator. Verse 19, now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. Okay, those are the teams. So you have 850 prophets, 450 of Baal, and one lone prophet of Yahweh named Elijah, the troubler of Israel because they're blaming him for the drought. Look at verse 20 of 1 Kings 18. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. If you keep reading, two bulls are taken, two sacrifices are prepared, and Elijah lets the prophets of Baal go first. And this is what he says in verse 27. You call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And look, and look at this is the wager, if you would. The God who answers by fire, by lightning, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Okay, so the, so, the, so the storm God, if you would, who answers in a mighty display of lightning, he is the one that we will ascribe worth to. He is the one that we will worship, if you would, in the spirit of Psalm 29, verses 1 to 2. So, Team Baal gets to call on their God first. Verse 26, they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon. That's a long, that's a long worship service. Saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And, and, and it gets humorous. I want you to see this. And they limped around the altar that they had made in an effort to get Baal's attention. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, and I want you to see how 
how crisp Scripture is because there's a crassness here that you're not supposed to miss. Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself. Perhaps your God is urinating. That's a crass jab at Baal. This is what Elijah is saying. Or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. See, since, since Baal has not been able to break the drought that Yahweh created, he must be gone on a journey, and he's not listening to you. Of course, Baal did not answer. And look at how they respond to Elijah's taunts. Look at verse 26. They cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Just like so much of religion today, all that activity meant nothing. It impressed the onlookers, but it was empty and meaningless in the spiritual realm. Look at verse 30, 1 Kings 18. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. He wanted, them, he wanted them both as eyewitnesses and earwitnesses. Come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been destroyed, which had, which had suffered misuse. He repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. So as he's stacking these 12 stones, he is reminding the people of Israel of who they are in Yahweh, their identity, their history, their covenants. So he took the 12 stones and he says this, Israel shall be your name. He's reminding them of their heritage. Look at verse 32. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two sayas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water. Interestingly, he calls for water. The brooks had already dried up. This was a precious commodity. It's not just that he's saturating the altar so that when the lightning comes down, it's impressive. He's actually pouring something of great worth in which he knows God is going to respond and supply water to the nation. He's going to break the drought because the true storm God is Yahweh, not Baal. He says, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Verse 34, and he said, do it a second time. And they did it, and he said, and they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. Verse 35, and the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. 1 Kings 18, verse 36. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, right, O Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And verse 38 is the answer. 
Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, Yahweh, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Psalm 29, after seven verses of a picture of a powerful storm and the Lord's voice seven times, the Lord's voice, the Lord's voice, the Lord's voice. In Psalm 29, verse 9, it says, and in His temple all cry, glory. We're supposed to learn something from that psalm and from Elijah's confrontation with a fake imitation storm god. Now, go into the New Testament and look at Mark chapter 4. Because the disciples themselves who have already chosen to follow Jesus will say this, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So he is not a storm god. He is above and the creator and the sustainer and the sovereign of the storm. See, what the gospels do, and the reason there are four of them, is they are intended to introduce you to a person. They do not answer every question, but they do answer the most important question, and that is the identity of this person named Jesus. Look at Mark chapter 4, verse 35. On that day when evening had come, so again, you have another situation created divinely to teach a lesson. It's dark. When evening had come, Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side. Let us go over to the east side. And leaving the crowd, they took with them, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. Okay, so the lake now is going to become a classroom, and the storm is going to be a key lesson. And do you know that some of God's greatest lessons for you and for me happen within the storms, within chaos? We are in one right now, if you would, and we're navigating it turmoil, things that are out of our control. Look at Mark 4, verse 37. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. So the the scene is a powerful storm that's threatening the the integrity of the boat and the lives of the disciples. And verse 38, to make matters worse, according to the optics of the disciples, But he, Jesus, was in the stern, and what was he doing? He's asleep. Is that a problem? Because sometimes when we go through storms, it seems like God is what? Asleep. Or from Psalm 28 last week, it seems as though he is silent and distant. Verse 38, and they woke him and said to him, teacher, and I want you to hear this, it's an accusation. Do you not care that we are perishing? Their fear caused them to assume something about Jesus that was not true. Their panic turned to irritation, their irritation to accusation, all because they did not really know who was really sleeping in their boat. See, that's the point to know who this one is. Look at verse 39. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Jesus gives a command to creation, his creation. 
He gives a command to a storm, an incredible storm, and immediate peace. Look at verse 40. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And at that point, the disciples' object of fear, which had been a storm. By the way, these were, these were fishermen. These were seasoned mariners. This was a hellacious storm. Their fear turned from the object of a storm to the one standing in the boat who had been asleep. Look at verse 41. This is, this is the lesson all along. This is why they were in this classroom. This is why they had this curriculum. Verse 41, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Psalm 29 tells you it's Yahweh. 1 Kings 18 tells you it is Yahweh. The Gospels tell you that it is Jesus. And he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father, the Lord of creation. Dalich's observation on Psalm 29's opening and conclusion is spot on. He says this, Gloria in excelsis is its beginning and pox in terrace is its end. Basically, he's saying, Glory to God in the highest is the beginning of Psalm 29, and peace on earth is its conclusion. I'm going to read to you Luke chapter 2, because the angels know something that disciples have to learn. In Luke chapter 2, verse 11, it says this, For unto you is born this day in the city of David, David, Psalm 29, the shepherd of Israel. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby. No longer is it this chaotic, powerful storm. You will now find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, Psalm 29, verse 1, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And then Psalm 29, verse 11 and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. It's interesting that Job was going through his own storm, and God never explained to him why. What, what God did with Job is give him a 70-question, if you would attest, that he failed. And in some of these things are simply questions about creation and about storms and about his creative power. And listen to, listen to two things that he says God says to Job in Job 38, verse 22 to 25, Job, have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble? Of course, Job has to silently and solemnly say no. He says, who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt? Was it you, Job? No. It's interesting that in Revelation chapter 1, John is surprised to see a picture of Jesus he wasn't expecting. He turns around and he sees this figure, and I'm just going to give you four of the many descriptions he gives. Jesus has eyes as a flame of fire, feet like burnished bronze, out of whose mouth comes a two-edged sword, whose voice was the sound of roaring waters. And John, who had walked with Jesus for more than three years, falls down as a dead man. Jesus puts his hand on him and he says, Fear not, for I hold the keys of Hades. 
I am he that was dead, but I am now alive forevermore. Psalm 29 reminds us of the character of God. Jesus displayed him on earth. He revealed to you what the Father really looks like. But don't mistake him for simply a rabbi in sandals because Revelation 1 is going to remind you this is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Romans 1.16, that's why Paul could say this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Are you listening to the voice of the Lord? Are you overwhelmed by the character and the majesty of the Lord? When is the last time on your knees you just bowed down and you ascribed to Him worth and you said, glory, because of just who He is? Jeremiah says, does not my word burn like fire, says the Lord? It is, not like a mighty, is it not like a mighty hammer that smashes a rock to pieces? And of course, Jesus would pray, sanctify them, set them apart in truth. Your word is truth. I'm going to invite our music team to come forward. And I've got one last question for you, and that is, what relationship do you have with God through His Son, the Word who became flesh? It was already read for us this morning that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, Elijah, But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. What relationship do you have through that revelation, through that Word? Because Scripture then says, after making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down. A priest never sat down. But our high priest can because his work is finished. It's complete. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels, even the angels of of, of Psalm 29 who are singing holy to him, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Do you know the word that became flesh, Jesus Christ, as your Savior That is the gospel, the power of God unto salvation to all who what? Believe from faith to faith. Let's pray. Lord, you are a mighty God, all-powerful, glorious, full of glory and strength. And forgive us for our low view of who you are. Practically, our practical atheism, our practical theological deficiency as we live. Forgive us of our low view of sin. Capture our hearts again with the picture of your glory, your awesomeness. So that all in your temple, all in your church, all of your people would fall down and say glory, that the world would see your uniqueness in who you are and what you have done. And thank you for sending to us the Word, your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would open up blind eyes 
and soften hardened hearts and draw people to yourself in simple faith, believing, knowing that in Christ, by faith alone, by your gift of grace, they can receive the forgiveness of sin. We praise you for your goodness, your mercy, and we ascribe to you incredible glory and might that is due to your name. Help us now to sing this final hymn in a response to your goodness and your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.